Well, good evening. Um, I will be presenting Infections After Natural Disasters. The objectives of this presentation are the following. I will be reviewing types of natural disaster as well as their classification. I will be discussing risk factors for communicable and infectious diseases following these events. We'll be mentioning what infections to expect after each type of natural disaster and giving examples of relevant outbreaks that have occurred throughout history after these catastrophic events. And last but not least, I will be providing strategies for the prevention of infection. As in an introduction, what is a natural disaster? The definition is a severe emergency resulting in death, illness, injury, and profound damage that cannot be successfully managed by using ordinary resources. And usually they require external support. So why is it important to talk about this topic? Why is it important to talk about infections after natural disasters? So as you all know, we all lived through a very active 2017 hurricane season. Um, on August 25, Hurricane Har Harvey hit Houston, made landfall in Rockport, Texas. Then in September 10, Hurricane Irma made landfall in South Florida, affected Miami, Naples, even affected us in, here in Tampa, also affected Cuba greatly. Then in September 20, Hurricane Maria made landfall in Puerto Rico. And it also affected many other of the Caribbean islands. And last but not least, Hurricane Nate, the hurricane, not the fellow, um, made landfall in the Mississippi River in, on October 7. And what's so impressive about this hurricane season is that three of those were category five, which is the highest you can go on the scale. And as expected, the aftermath was very sad and there was a lot of flooding, there was a lot of destruction, a lot of people lost their homes, a lot of people were displaced, um, and these are all pictures from the 2017 hurricane season. On the column to the left, uh, we have Harvey pictures. On the middle column is actually some Florida pictures. And on the top, it's Key West. Here, the house in Pontevedra Beach. And that um, last one is a Cuban waiting in floodwater. And these all are from Puerto Rico, people without um, walls or glasses in their apartment, people washing their laundry in the street, no food in the supermarket, just some things, some glimpses um, into what these hurricanes caused last, last year. So types of natural disasters, we're very familiar with most of them here. We have tornadoes, volcanoes, hurricanes, wildfires and earthquakes. However, what I did not know is that these can be further classified um, into three big groups. Geophysical, that's where we would have our earthquake, volcanoes, and dry mass movement. Rockfall, landslides, avalanches, and then we have climate related, which include hy hydrologic and meteorologic. And here we would include the floods, the hurricanes, the tornadoes, wet mass movement, droughts, tropical storms, cyclones, typhoons, um, and wildfires. And last but not least, biologic, which I didn't know had its own category, um, and it's what part of what I will be focusing on today, is epidemic infectious disease. And that includes anything from viral, bacterial, parasitic, fungal. Um, and also in this category, we can have insect infestation and animal stampedes, but I won't be talking about those. 
numbers and natural disasters. This is a graph that I obtained from an uh, article in the New England Journal regarding natural disasters. And this is the number of disasters that they had that plotted from 1950 to 2012. Just notice that the gray bars represent geophysical disasters, earthquakes and volcanoes, and the blue bars rec represent climate related, hurricanes, um, tornadoes, uh, and those have increased, incremented throughout the years. Now, the red line plotted is the economic damage, which is also very high in most recent years. And I won't go into details on why there's more climate-related versus geophysical. That's a whole different topic. Um, but it's something that we must be aware of. And death and disasters. Uh, this is the most uh, difficult part to deal with after a natural disaster. And unfortunately, developing countries are disproportionately affected due to lack of many things, due to lack of resources, infrastructure, and also poor disaster preparedness. And as a result of natural disasters, especially the rapid onset ones, we can have immediate causes of death, such as crush-related injuries that occur after falling building or debris due earth to earthquakes or debris, um, born trauma, as well as drowning. However, it is known that infectious disease contribute greatly to increased morbidity and mortality after natural disasters. And there's a common misconception that animal body, dead animal bodies and human corpse after the natural disaster is what um, contributes to these infections, <coughs> and that is a myth, okay? So take that out of your mind. The number one risk factor is population displacement. And there are other risk factors that play a role. Um, of course, the type of natural disaster, the category, the impact that it has on these things that are within the container. Access to health care. If there's no access to health care, there's more infection. If there's lack of shelter, there's more exposure to um, things that can cause infection. If there is unsafe water, if there is poor waste management, if there's poor sanitation, if there's crowding, all those can contribute to infection. As I was preparing this presentation, I was wondering what was the best way to organize it. And I thought, well, I'll talk about infections after earthquakes and then infections after floods, but you can have the same type of infection in, different, um, in the different natural disasters. So I decided to group it by the major causes of infection. And then, in each category, I will present some outbreaks um, after natural disasters. So number one is, in the top, wound infections, infections related to injury. Um, also, there are water-related infections, infections that result from contamination, uh, contaminated water and food that the human is exposed to. The third category is infections that result from crowding, which is here on the right. And the fourth category, category is infections that are vector-borne. And in orange, you will see that the top five causes of death um, within those groups are measles, respiratory infections, diarrheal diseases, resulting malnutrition, and malaria in endemic zones. And that's not in order. So let's begin by talking about wound infections. So during natural disasters, there's a lot of debris flying around. There can be uh, falling trees, falling buildings, 
uh, flooding cannot allow you to see what you're stepping on. And as a result, you can get a puncture wound or you could get a crush injury. And this is how the pathogen gets inoculated directly into the skin or into the wound. To make matters worse, that wound gets contaminated by debris, by soil, metal, wood, water, you name it. And then to make matters worse, that wound cannot, uh, can become severe because of two things. One, inability to wash that wound with clean water. And number two, the inability for that patient to go and get some antibiotics because of dam damage to the infrastructure or um, lack of health care. So um, taking this in mind, there are different etiologies to be considered depending on the type of exposure that wound has. So if that wound was exposed to soil, you must think of tetanus, gas gangrene, which all are caused by clostridium, and um, also fungal infection. Don't forget about these. If that wound was um, exposed to salt water or to brackish water, think about Vibrio. Think about Aramonas as well and Mycobacterium mar marinum. And if there was freshwater involvement, rapid growing Mycobacteria, Simonas, Burkosaria. And don't forget about the common things that cause wounds, staph and strep. So according to up to date, there is not a guideline per se to treat, uh, for regimens to treat um, wounds after water exposure. However, they, they do give some suggestions. You should when should you consider hospitalizing somebody who has a wound, for example? So if that patient presents with a wound and also has systemic symptoms like fever, chills, rigors, leukocytosis, sepsis, consider inpatient antibiotics. If they also have some serious comorbidity, hepatic disease, immunocompromised, cancer, or they're older and diabetic, consider inpatient antibiotics. Um, and if you can monitor that patient 24 to 48 and they don't have none of this, then you can do probably outpatient antibiotics. Um, a a regimen, uh, they have three, two, two regimens. First, you can use either uh, cephalosporin, and depending on your needs, you could use PO Keflex, or you could use IV cefasolin, or you could use ceftriaxone. Um, you can even use cefepime if you want to cover Simonas. Just depends on what the patient had exposure to. Um, or you could just use clindamycin, um, PO or IV. The other regimen that they suggest is a Leviquin plus any, another agent based on that patient's risk. For example, if they were exposed to seawater, add doxycycline to the Leviquin so that you could get better Vibrio coverage. Um, if that wound was exposed to waste management, sewage water, um, then add on some flagell. Uh, they also say that you should not add empirical treatment for Mycobacterium marinum, um, except in those cases that the history is really specific, like they put their, wa their wound in an aquarium or a fish tank, or if you have a tissue diagnosis with the AFB, then consider adding it on. And in, th in that case, you could use clarithromycin plus ethambutol or clarithromycin plus rifampin. So now we'll be explaining a famous outbreak that occurred after hurricane. Does anybody know what hurricane that is? And it's not one of the ones that we saw in 2017. It's like Katrina. Hurricane Katrina, very good. 
Um, so in August 29, 2005, Hurricane Katrina, a Category 3 storm, made its landfall in Louisiana, and there was severe flooding damage, especially in the New Orleans area. So all these people <clears throat> that you see in this picture, wading in the water, sought shelter in that Superdome. And then from there, they were taken to nearby towns. Some were taken to Houston, for example. Um, <clears throat> and FEMA called Hurricane Katrina the single most catastrophic natural disaster in U.S. history. And it was one of the most costliest hurricanes. Um, the fatalities totaled 1,833 directly or indirectly. Um, and as you all know, Hurricane Katrina was the Gulf Coast of the U.S. So afterwards, no surprise, 18 cases of Vibrio species, wound infections, were identified. Risk factors, wading in the floodwaters and the brackish water, and also having pre-existing comorbidities, as you all know, cirrhosis or hepatic disease. And five of those 18 died. They had rapid progression. So here is um, an article I found on the CDC website, the MMWR. And it, on the left, there's a graph showing the different species of Vibrio that were isolated. In the dark blue bars, you could see Vibrio vulnificus was pretty pretty much the, the highest species, uh, the most frequent species involved. Um, the light blue are Vibrio parahemolyticus. Uh, the, the ones with the diagonal line is Vibrio species that were not specified, and the bars with the horizontal lines <coughs> were Vibrio cholera non-toxigenic, which is very distinct from toxigenic Vibrio cholera that causes cholera. And the white dots represent um, fatalities. And you can see the, the onset of Hurricane Katrina and the rise in infections afterwards. And here to the right, there, there are the characteristic wounds of Vibro, the bullet, the blisters. So we already talked about an outbreak after a, hur a hurricane relating to wound infections. How about an outbreak after a tornado? So in 2011, there was an E5 tornado that struck Joplin, Missouri on May 22, 2011. And it was categorized as the one of the seventh, the seventh deadliest. More than 1,000 persons were injured, um, approximately 160 deaths. And these are some pictures um, that I was able to find on CNN website uh, about this tornado. And this is curious. I found this article in New England Journal. I didn't know that there was a tornado in Joplin, and I found it out this way. And they identified a cluster of patients who were diagnosed with necrotizing cutaneous mucormycosis. So some background information about mucormycosis before we talk about the, that cluster of patients. Um, it's an ubiquitous fungi, soil, decaying wood, organic matter. Risk factors include iron ore wood states, and also they like acidic environments. Uh, the classic feature is tissue necrosis, and it's because they have, they cause vascular invasion, subsequent thrombosis, which predispose to that. And cases have not only occurred after tornadoes, they have occurred after tsunamis and volcanoes as well. And to the right, uh, we can see a hyphae of mucor, which is a septate and it doesn't have the acute angle branching and it is very important to distinguish it morphologically from aspergillus which is septate and has the acute angle 
because the drug of choice for each is different. If you start the patient on voriconazole, you're not going to cover the mucor. Um, so that's important to keep in mind. So basically, I know this slide is a little busy. This table was from that, uh, that article, and it's the characteristics of these cl cluster of patients. So initially, there were 18 cases suspected. Of those 18, 13 were confirmed, whether it were, they were confirmed by culture, histopathological testing, and also by visual inspection of the morphology. Of those 13, 10 ended up in the ICU. And of those 10, five died. And all of the wounds, all of the cases resulted from traumatic injury, whether it be penetrating, blunt, but they all had a wound. Interesting is that if you can direct to the table, the second uh, bar that says immunocompromised, zero. We're immunocompromised, none. And we are so used to seeing immunocompromised patients in Moffitt with fungal infections, and it was curious that you can get cutaneous mucor in a cuminal competent host. Also interesting, only two of those 13 were diabetics, which is another risk factor. Um, and another interesting thing I found in this table in, at the very end is that all 13 patients were located in the zone where the most damage or where the tornado was most severe. So food for thought. Here is a map of the di general direction of the tornado. The darker orange is where it was catastrophic. And each box represents one of those 13 patients. In, in all of them, Apophysomyces trapeziformis, which belongs to the Mucor family, was identified. And DNA they were able to do DNA sequencing and genotyping on almost all of them except two. So these are some pictures that were in the, that article. The top um, A and B is the same patient. Uh, that's an extremity, and they had to go undergo surgical debridement, irrigation, washout multiple times. In the bottom, the panel C, it's a wound, a cutaneous mucormycosis on the flank area. And if you can see, that one has like a white fluffy appearance on the top there. And here at the bottom, it's histopathology of one of them, and the arrow signs are actually pointing to, it's not very, you have to really look at it, but it is actually pointing to the hyphae. And um, while I was going through Joplin tornado pictures, I found this picture that called my attention, this photo, because it had a big tetanus sign on it. And actually, this was a picture, uh, photo taken at a free tent, uh, a tent where they were giving away free tetanus shots. So to finalize our discussion on wound infections after natural disasters, we must always keep this in mind. Um, to who we're going to give the tetanus toxoid plus minus the immunoglobulin. So for, there's a, a nice, you could go to the CDC, but it, all, it has it in words. And I like things in tables. So there's a nice table on, in up to date where it says that if the patient has a clean and minor wound, however you don't know their vaccination history or they are under immunized less than three doses, you should go ahead and give the tetanus toxoid. If they already have their three doses, but it has been more than 10 years, you should give it as well. If not, well, you don't have to give it. And in these clean and minor wounds, you don't have to give the immunoglobulin. Um, however, if the wound is major or contaminated, which is what you'll probably get after a hurricane, a contaminated wound, 
um, you should give uh, the tetanus toxoid and you should uh, only, uh, only give it if, if the lassos was less than five years ago, more than five years ago. And you should only give the immune globulin in those cases where you don't know the vaccination history or they've gotten less than three doses. And there's different formulations for the vaccination and it depends on age. For less than seven years old, you're gonna do the DTaP. Um, and it says for more than seven years old, uh, Tdap is preferred. Tdap is also preferred in each pregnancy. Um, and it says that you should use TD, which is uh, preferred to the tetanus toxoid if the patient already got Tdap. And the immunoglobulin, this is very important, um, should, if you are going to give it, you should uh, give 250 units um, intramuscularly at a different site from the toxoid. So we discussed wounds. Any questions, doubts on wound infections? And now we will be discussing infections related to waterborne um, diseases or wa contaminated water exposure. So in this category, uh, we have diarrheal disease outbreaks. These are transmitted via fecal-oral route. They occur after drinking contaminated water or you can eat, also eat contaminated food. Um, and these are higher in developing than industrialized countries because of the infrastructure and the poor sanitation and the poor sewage management. Um, you can have a diarrheal disease outbreak from any, from any of any pathogen really. It can be bacterial, it could be vibrio cholera, salmonella, paratyphoid, antiphoid, shigella, enterotoxigenic E. coli. You can also have viral uh, etiologies, hepatitis A and E, norovirus, rotavirus, and parasites as well, cryptosporidium, among others. The list goes on and on. So another outbreak after Hurricane Katrina um, was, I found this article, it was published in CID in 2017, 2007, and it reads, widespread outbreak of norovirus gastroenteritis among evacuees of Hurricane Katrina residing in a large mega shelter in Houston, Texas. Lessons learned for prevention. So when Hurricane Katrina hit in August 2009, uh, a lot of people were in the Superdome and many of those people that were hit uh, were evacuated to Houston, 200,000 of them. Of those, 27,000 were taken to this place called Reliant Park Complex, which is a stadium. And there was a, they, the point was for them to get shelter, clean water, clean food, and also they established a clinic there for health care services. However, during the, a period of 11 days, from 2 of September until 12 of September, three, that three days after the hurricane, more than 1,000 patients were treated for acute gastroenteritis. So they, they thought there's something going on. They started surveillance. And here we could see the patients, the number of clinic visits, the patients that went, it didn't discriminate age. Both children and adult were affected. Um, if they reported vomiting, diarrhea, or both, they were the, it was called a syndromic surveillance. They were analyzing their specimens. And they're not just people from Reliant Park, but other places. But then I read that some people from there were relocated to other places. So who knows? Um, and the sole enteric pathogen that was identified was norovirus. And however, multiple strains were involved, which means 
that this is kind of a busy slide, but there was multiple modes of transmission and multiple sources of contamination. And they were able to identify some of them. Um, foodborne, some of the ha food handlers were ill, contaminating the food. Uh, waterborne, um, some of those workers were ill as well, and they contaminated waters and the containers. Um, also environmental, surfaces, bathrooms, um, on the clothing. And there was also droplet um, transmission, just being close to somebody who had vomited and, or somebody who had soiled themselves. Um, and there was also person to person because of dirty hands, soiled body parts. Um, so they quickly <coughs> implemented some interventions, including increasing more laboratories, giving more education on hand washing, on soap and water, on acute gastroenteritis, giving out hand sanitizers. They also made an isolation room for those who were sick, a rehydration room to help those that were dehydrated. And soon they were able to control the outbreak with these interventions. So now we just talked about an outbreak, a diarrheal disease that was seen after a hurricane. How about a diarrheal disease seen after an earthquake? So 2010, the Haiti earthquake. Uh, this earthquake struck on January 12, 2010. Uh, the death toll varies, but it's anywhere from 220,000 to 300,000. Uh, the number of injured were 300,000. 1.5 million were displaced. And as of September 2017, there's still people displaced, 38,000. And this um, GIF, just, just to show that the, there still has a lot, there's still a long way to go for the Haitian community after this earthquake. So this is actually a CID from earlier this month. I don't know who got it in the mail or who saw it um, or who has it in their box. Um, so this art is making reference to that cholera epidemic. And uh, it t actually talks about it a little bit on the inside. <coughs> so toxigenic vibrio cholera O1 was introduced into Haiti from Southeast Asia via United Nations forces during recovery efforts. Dr. Green likes to talk about this all the time in his um, presentations. Um, as you all know, cholera is a waterborne diarrheal disease, rapidly fatal in severe cases. And in Haiti's case, it was fatal for um, a lot of other reasons as well. The Haitian population was naive. They had no previous exposure to it. Or if they had, it was centuries ago. Uh, they didn't have any immunity to it. And also that strain, the one we will be talking about in a few, the O1 strain uh, that was identified, was very virulent. And unfortunately, cholera spread again, which this I did not know, um, by Hurricane Matthew in 2016 because of the poor sanitation that remained in the country after the earthquake. So infection will continue as long as there's unsafe water, unboiled or unclinated water, and as long as there's insufficient infrastructure, poor sewage handling, cholera will continue. So this is a New England Journal of Medicine article which actually <coughs> conducted cholera surveillance after the, um, after the earthquake for the first two years. So this is kind of a timeline of events. On October 19, 2010, which was 10 months after the earthquake, the first the health ministry of Haiti was first notified of unusually high numbers of patients with watery diarrhea and dehydration in two of the ten departments of Haiti. Departments are like analogous to states here or provinces. Um, and they started to look into it. 29 days later, cases of Vibrio cholera O1, serotype Ogawa, biotype Eltor, which is what 
Dr. Green likes to ask, is um, they were confirmed in all departments, all 10 departments. And two years later, 604,634 cases were identified. Of those, 329,697 were hospitalized, 7,436 deaths, and the O1 strain was isolated from 62% of the stool samples. And all strains were resistant to Bactrim and Streptomycin and susceptible to ampicillin, augmented tetracyclines. And however, they were no resistant fluoroquinolone strains, but there was reduced susceptibility in that strain. And here is just a map, and the top is by department. All of them were affected. The dark purple are the ones that reported most cases. This was the same map, but by communes, dividing it up by towns. And this is the two-year um, surveillance. Those darker, the dark purple is those that were hospitalized. The light blue is those that were ambulatory cases. And the green, the green line that goes across is the cumulative case fatality rate. And so we already heard about outbreak after earthquake and after hurricane. How about flooding? So, as you all know, this is common knowledge for us, that leptospirosis has been known to be involved in outbreaks, especially after flooding. And there are so many reports throughout history that if I talked about it, we wouldn't finish. Um, but here, just an example, 1996, there was an outbreak in Brazil. In hurricane, after Hurricane Katrina, there was a leptospirosis outbreak as well. It mentions it in that, um, that this month's actually uh, CID, and in Puerto Rico, after Hurricane Maria, there was suspected leptospirosis outbreak. And I'm just going to go through this briefly, but as you'll know, leptos leptospira is a bacterial spirochete that is um, shed by the urine of rodents, but not just rodents or rats, animals, uh, cattle, livestock, dogs, and that contaminates the environment. And after natural disasters, flooding, um, humans come in contact with this water, contaminated water with this spiroquet and soil, and that's how the spread of the organism is facilitated. And when the human has a skin barrier, uh, which is deficient because of a wound, because they've stepped on debris, or they got hit, um, it e it's even more easy for patient to be exposed and also by splashing into the mucosa or the conjunctival membranes. The clinical manifestations are very nonspecific and I wanted to include them because um, we had a patient in the VA that he just presented with fever, nausea, vomit, or diarrhea and this could be any old acute gastroenteritis. Um, so it, it is important for us to have a high level of suspicion if the patient has been exposed. Um, and conjunctival suffusion, although present only 55%, uh, but when present, it's very uh, specific for leptospirosis and it should uh, make us look for it even more. And for some reason, the myalgia, but not in all cases, has a predilection for the calf muscles. And leptospirosis can be very mild, but it can also be very severe and it could lead to ARDS. It could lead to alveolar hemorrhage, myocarditis, rhabdomyolysis, renal failure, liver failure, jaundice, hyperbilirubinemia with a little bit of transaminitis. And th those two at the end together is what we call Wild's disease. And 
here uh, we have a picture of Alexander Fleming's accidental discovery of penicillin, just a reminder that penicillin is still one of the agents we can use uh, against leptospirosis, as well as ceftriaxone <coughs> and doxycycline. And don't forget that while you're waiting in the flood water, looking, you know, trying to survive, you're going to find scavenging animals, stray animals, and you can also uh, be exposed to an animal bite from a dog, from a cat, from a raccoon, from a snake. Um, so it's important to keep these organisms in mind, Catnocephaga, Pastorella, rabies, as well as rat bite fever, the list goes on. So we've discussed already um, wound and water. Now let's discuss briefly um, vector-borne. So vector-borne diseases, um, meteorologic events such as hurricanes, what they bring is heavy rainfall. They cause the rivers to overflow. And initially, the old breeding sites get wiped out, but stagnant water leads to new breeding sites. And with these new breeding sites, the vector or mosquito population goes up. And the transmission, because of this, of the vector-borne disease goes up as well. Also, humans after natural disaster inadvertently, because of the situation, change their behavior. So there's more crowding. So you're going to have an infected host and a susceptible host in near proximity. And it makes it easy for the vector to transmit the disease from one to the other. Also, many of them lost their shelter, lost their house, so they're going to be outdoors and more exposed to the vectors. Um, and also, the last thing on their mind is doing stuff to prevent, you know, vector, like insect repellents. They have other things to worry about, getting water, getting a shelter. So they're, they're not going to probably participate in these behaviors for prevention. And this is just a list of all the vector-borne diseases and it goes on as well. And it also depends on the endemic zone. Um, malaria, dengue, Zika, chikungunya. Actually, that was a concern in Puerto Rico because, um, you know, in recent years there have been outbreaks because, and they were concerned that after Hurricane Maria, they might reemerge. Um, West Nile virus, Japanese encephalitis, yellow fever, and other arbor virus are all in the list of vector-borne diseases. And I'm not going to go into details because it, I was only given an hour. So, an outbreak after an earthquake, which this was pretty interesting um, for different reasons, but I'll explain now. Um, in 1991, there was a 7.5 magnitude earthquake that struck the Limon province in Costa Rica. Um, 200 were wounded, 58 were dead. However, there was a malaria outbreak afterwards, which involved Plasmodium vivax. And it occurred, it went on, it rampaged from June 1991 through May 1992. A total of 3,597 cases were recorded. Don't have the tally on how many died because of the outbreak. But when you look for malaria in Costa Rica um, in up to date, for example, here you have the gray countries are zones where there's non-endemic malaria. And Costa Rica is one of them, which initially led me to believe, well, there's no malaria in Costa Rica. So the, who, the World Health Organization, is Costa Rica is one of those countries which is gearing towards um, malaria elimination. However, uh, when you look at it at the CDC, you find out that there was an outbreak recently in 2017, and some cases were reported in that same province, in the Limon province, where the earthquake was. And they think it was a relapse 
from an outbreak that occurred in 2016. I'm not sure, you know, if that was flood or natural disaster related, but keep in mind, Limon province and Costa Rica, there's malaria, just <coughs> for you to know. So we already discussed these three categories. Now for the last category, um, infections related to crowding. And these are the top infections that result from crowding. Tuberculosis, and also something to point out is that damage to infrastructure after natural disasters lead to disruption of public health programs. So that's also something to think about. Um, measles, and this risk depends on the baseline immunity of that population. So it's, all, it's very important after disasters to install um, catch-up vaccines or vaccination campaigns. Um, you can also get meningitis um, due to crowding, and it's very important to recognize the signs because in these cases, due to crowding, you might have to um, respond with antibiotic prophylaxis. And last but not least, acute respiratory infections, especially <coughs> influenza. And then there's other things that can lead to respiratory infections, like cooking over an open flame, poor nutrition, and also, um, this is a very busy slide, but there are fungal respiratory infections that occur because of the spores getting aerosolized, um, dust, dust storms, wind. So um, I'm going to, those three highlighted, I'm going to talk a little bit more about those. So in 1994, there was a earthquake that hit Northridge, California. In this, in this map at the bottom left, uh, the yellow dots, which you kind of have to look really hard, but represent coxy cases, coccidiomycosis cases. Um, and then they started a surveillance, and this is an outbreak that occurred following that earthquake. And they determined that it was the earthquake caused a landslide that caused a dust cloud that caused the infection. And infections after tsunamis can lead to respiratory infections as well. Um, so in 2004, in all the articles I read about natural disasters, they had to mention this tsunami. Um, the Indian Ocean tsunami it occurred on December 26, 2004 after the day after Christmas, very sad. Um, and it was after a 9.1 earthquake. Uh, 227,898 people were killed or listed missing or presumed dead, which is pretty high. And it was $10 billion in material losses. They even made a movie about it. You know, I don't know if you guys remember this movie, The Impossible, with Ewan McGregor and Naomi Watts. I recommend it. And this is a GIF scene from that. Hmm? <laughs> and then in 2011, there was another tsunami in Japan after an earthquake. Um, on March 11, 2011, a 9.1 magnitude earthquake took place, and then it generated a 30-foot wave um, that just damaged several nuclear reactors as well. And there were 22,000 missing or dead. 20,000 20, dead and 2,000 missing. So basically, there's a term called tsunami lung, which I had not know, did not know about until I started reading. And it's a sinopulmonary infection, specifically aspiration pneumonia, which results from aspirating uh, water with debris and contamination after a, a tsunami. Um, this tsunami lung can be caused by bacteria, fungi, or both. Um, and near drowning cases, the most common pathogen, as you will know, 
Cytosporum apiospermium, or AKA his sexual form, Cytolacheria boidi, and this can progress rapidly to a CNS infection, not just respiratory, even in immunocompetent hosts. So what's the take home message? Um, I found this table in a article called Infection Prevention After Natural Disasters. And I, it's a little busy, but I like it because it divides the four categories that I talked about, waterborne, airborne, vectorborne, and contamination. And all the diseases you have to include in the differential after a natural disaster. And then here in this column, it says when to expect um, certain um, infections based on the risk factors. Here, it, it reiterates the risk factors. Population displacement from non-endemic to endemic areas. Think about vector-borne diseases. If there's overcrowding, think about the respiratory, airborne, and droplet diseases. If there's stagnant water, again, leptospirosis, vector-borne. If there's poor sanitation, diarrheal diseases. If um, there's high exposure to vectors, again, vector-borne and leptospirosis. Um, if there's not sufficient nutrition, uh, that's because of diarrheal diseases and other. Low vaccination, they only mark measles, but I think we have to, to keep in mind tetanus as well. And also, there's a meningococcal vaccine, so I don't know what's the role of that there. And injuries, um, wound infection. And here, it's the same table, but what ways to prevent those infections? Site planning before the disaster, clean water, um, good sanitation, solid waste management, water and food hygiene, nutrition, giving people food, giving people medical supplies, vaccination, vector control, insect, um, insecticide-treated nets, personal protection, isolating those that are sick, identifying those that need prophylactic treatment. Um, also, but I like the last two, which says that in all these health education, not only educating the patient, also educating the healthcare workers and those, those physicians that will be treating those patients. And disease management, treatment, and supportive care is imperative. So that's where we come in as ID docs, as physicians. And that's the end of my presentation. My acknowledgments, I thank a lot of people, but thank you all for your attention. Um, thanks to Louise, she was the one who suggested the topic and she's my muse. Um, thank you for Dr. Ayler for doing the ID podcast website and keeping this up. To all those that helped in one way or another during the very active 2017 season, whether it be by providing care at the hospital to those that evacuated from Irma, whether it was sending supplies to Puerto Rico, sending supplies to Houston, donating. Um, here we have pictures of people who sent stuff to Puerto Rico, who went to Puerto Rico, and to my family. Um, I, I was able to see them in December after the hurricane. We had water, we had light, the infrastructure was safe, we had a nice Christmas, but a reminder that this is not the reality. A lot of people are still without water, still without light, are still without a housing, and um, we need to still focus on those people. And these are my references, and this is the end. Any questions? <laughs>